Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thursday, August the 12th. 1971. The sun was rising in East Akron when someone rapped loudly on the front door. There were five people inside the home on Ardella Avenue, but only 11-year-old Crystal Mosley was roused to action. Groggily, she rolled over her five-year-old brother Steve, surprised to find he'd crawled into bed with her during the night, and then padded to the front door. She opened it to find her mom's good friend, Pastor Charles Bell. Where's your mom, Crystal? He said. She was trying to reach me last night. Crystal's mom, Phyllis Mosley, was 28 years old. And though she'd been married for 10 years, she was, in practice, a single mother of four. Her estranged husband, Ronald, became a traveling musician when the group he was in hit the big time. Ruby and the Romantics saw their song, Our Day Will Come, soared to number one on the billboard charts a few years earlier. Now, Ronnie returned home perhaps four times a year, bearing gifts for his children. The rest of the time, Phyllis supported her family all on her own with her job as a secretary at the General Electric Credit Corp. The previous night, something had unnerved Phyllis. She'd called Charles Bell to talk about it, but he couldn't get away from his third shift job at Firestone. So he decided to stop at the house on his way home from work. She must still be sleeping, Crystal told Pastor Bell. I'll get her. Then she turned and dutifully went to fetch her mother. A moment later, Crystal's screams filled the small house and the world would never be the same for the mostly children. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and beaconjournal.com, this is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Akron Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my Ohio Mysteries co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved, Episode 6, Phyllis Mosley. It's been 50 years What the Mosley children remember of their mother depends on the tender age when they last saw her. Corey Haynes is 63 now. He was 12 years old that morning in 1971. Being the oldest, he figures he remembers her best. She put herself through Barberton, I believe, business uh, business school. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, was a graduate and uh, was able to land a job with General Electric. That was her, that was the job she had at the time of What did she do there? She was in accounting. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. She was in accounting. Okay. Um, I remember some of the paperwork she used to bring from school, and I used to kind of look over her shoulder and, and had no idea what it was, but it was a lot of numbers all the time. Crystal Church, the 11-year-old girl who answered the door that fateful day, is 61 now. My mother was strong. She had four of us, actually taking care of us by herself. Little Ronald Mosley is 60. He was 10 then. Friends and family call him Rampy, so we'll call him that to avoid confusion with his father and namesake. I remember she was a hard worker. I remember she was going to school, and she was doing something shorthand, too, right? Yeah, she did some shorthand. Because she, worked, she worked as a, a secretary or something. And, yeah, I remember the shorthand. I remember looking at her books and seeing all that squiggly writing. And, uh, but the main thing I remember, she was always working and trying to get ahead. And I think that left a major impression on me because, I mean, that's kind of how I've lived my life that way. The youngest sibling is James Mosley, though he goes by his middle name, Steve. He's 55 years old, but had just turned five back then. He doesn't remember his mom all that well. Mostly, he remembers wanting to be a musician, like his dad, and how his mom tolerated him pulling all the pots and pans from the cupboard to create a drum set. Though they didn't know it for most of their young lives, the siblings actually had two different biological fathers. Corey and Crystal were the children of Charles Haynes, but he wasn't in their lives, and they didn't know he existed until they were almost teenagers. No, Ronald Mosley, the father of the two younger kids, he was daddy to all of them, even if he was rarely home. Ronnie Mosley graduated from Akron South High School where he sang in the choir, then attended Juilliard School of Music. Afterward, he joined a group of Akron friends with frontwoman Ruby Nash. He was one of four male backup singers, along with George Lee, Leroy Fan, and Ed Roberts. They called themselves Ruby and the Romantics. They had all grown up in Akron, singing at record hops, mixers, and talent shows, and in 1962, they went to New York and recorded Our Day Will Come, a hit that sold more than a million copies. They played together a full decade, traveling across North America and Europe and performing their lush harmonies in matching suits and synchronized movements. They shared the stage with Ray Charles, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Sam Cooke, Patti LaBelle, Dionne Warwick, the Shirelles, the Coasters, the Drifters, they did tours with Dick Clark, who would go onto their bus to listen to them sing. From 1963 to 1966, they performed in their hometown four times, at the Akron Armory and the Akron Civic Theater, next to the Four Seasons and Smokey Robinson. Their influence on early R&B earned them induction into several halls of fame. The Temptations once revealed that the original model 
for their famous background harmonies and movements came from Ruby and the Romantics. And several of their songs were covered by top acts of the day. One of their songs, Hey There Lonely Boy, was covered by Eddie Holman as Hey There Lonely Girl and became a defining song of their generation. But success doesn't come without a price. In the Mosley home, the cost was an absent father. Did he well, like make fun. it up to you? Was it fun we having him home? We used to go fishing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We stood out on the bearing gifts. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. From the different places he'd gone. Yeah. 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 Um, Christmas. 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 Yeah. Provide stuff. Until but, he became a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, but. He really didn't talk about the road when he when he was with us because I know he was probably in a bad place of being, I mean, feeling somewhat guilty that he wasn't with his family. Mm-hmm. You know, because like I said, when he was, when he came home, we knew he was home. If Ronald made much money, it doesn't appear a lot of it went to supporting Phyllis and the four children. They lived in a brand new government subsidized house on Ardella Avenue. And the mostly children definitely had the impression that their hardworking mother was the breadwinner. But what they remember most about those days was the feeling of being loved and being safe. They remember having to do their chores and their homework. They all did well in school. And a mom who wouldn't spare the rod to keep them in line. They remembered being wrapped in the warmth of a large extended family. Here's Rampy. I remember us not having a lot, but yet not feeling like we were poor. Right. Right? And I remember... Christmas was Christmas was yeah, Christmas. And I remember yeah. <laughs> struggling, sure. a little, struggling a little bit. I remember yeah. her having conversations with my dad's dad around money. But again, I don't remember us not lacking anything or just being unhappy kids we just we weren't unhappy kids we we enjoyed each other we fought like you know siblings do sometimes and we enjoyed our cousins you know uh, uh her my mom's mom was kind of like a matriarch because she'd get all of her brothers and sisters together and we were mm-hmm. always yeah. getting together at an uncle's house or an aunt's house and there's just whole groups of us you know young kids hanging out all the time and that changed after she passed. But uh, before she passed, I mean, the, those are memories that I have of family just getting together all the time. All the time. Still, the marriage of Phyllis and Ronald Mosley may have been coming to an end. Some of the kids believed their parents were trying to work out the strain of their father being gone so much. But the eldest, Corey, said he thought it was all over. And I was sitting in the living room when she was having this conversation, a lot, very loud conversation with him at the front. He was outside the front door, mm-hmm. and she was inside the front door, and I was sitting in the living room, and, she, and that's when she informed him that she wanted a divorce. Mm-hmm. And then shortly thereafter, I don't know how long, I don't know if it was a month, I don't know if it was two months, she was dead. Whether it was the impending divorce or something else, the kids knew something was wrong in their mother's life that summer of 71. Mm-hmm. I, I remember her, she had a friend that was a pastor, drove a Thunderbird. That was, was his name? That was Charles Bell. 
Okay, so so I remember her calling him in some type of despair, almost having conversations, but I couldn't tell you what the conversation was about. But. Charles Bell is the one who knocked on the door the morning of us finding our mother deceased because come to find out that she had been trying to uh, get with him as far as I, she may have known something was coming. Jim Pasilich is a detective in the Akron Police Department. He and his partner, Lieutenant Dave Whidden, have worked several cold cases since becoming investigators together in 1992. At the request of the Beacon Journal, Pasilich pulled the file of Phyllis Mosley. A thin folder is all that remains of the original investigation. Still, it offers the most accurate description of what police learned when they arrived at Ardella Avenue just after 6.30 a.m. and spoke to Crystal. You know, they all described about going to bed. She kind of went to bed before them, maybe at the same time the boys did. Crystal um, and her mom are watching TV earlier, this TV that ends up missing. Her mom goes to bed, she goes to bed shortly thereafter, shuts TV off. I think she says her mom's bedroom door is open at that time. They check the doors, doors are locked. She says, I even think the screen doors are locked. She uh, goes to bed, Crystal does. She says she gets up, she thinks it's three o'clock, she can't be for sure, to go to the restroom. She says her mom's door is shut and she hears her mom in the bedroom moving on the bed. Doesn't hear arguing, doesn't hear voices, doesn't hear anything like that. Don't think nothing of it, goes back to bed and then wakes up to the knocking on the door. I think it's Corey, see the oldest? I think he's the oldest boy. I think the next day he describes somewhere along the same lines. I think their bedroom, the boy's bedroom, I think was described as being right next to their mom's. He describes hearing what he says is his mom moving on the bed, but again, here's no voices, no arguing, no fighting, no nothing else. At the crack of dawn, Crystal wakes up to someone knocking on the door. It's a friend of her mom, so she had called, the, the mom, I guess, called him the night before while he's at work. So he said, I stopped by in the morning after work. So he knocks on the door. Crystal says, hey, my mom's still sleeping. And he says, well, will you go get her up? Crystal goes in the room. The gentleman hears uh, Crystal screaming, goes in and finds Miss Mosley uh, deceased in the bed. Phyllis had been shot in the head behind her right ear. The sound was muffled by two pillows that were found with holes and powder burns. She was lying in her bed under the covers, as if undisturbed, dressed in a nightgown, her hair in curlers. No shell casing recovered, no gun recovered that was used. There was a gun recovered in that room, but it was in between her mattress and the box springs wrapped up in a sock. But it wasn't the gun used. She had uh, made statements in the past, actually pretty recently, a month before or so, that she was scared of her husband, of uh, Ronald. She was afraid of him. There were some threats made, I think right around July 31st, before he uh, left to go out to do the shows out there in Connecticut. Um, like I said, they've been married for 10 years, but it looks like they were separated, according to our stuff, for like eight of those 10 years. So there was some probably bad blood in between there. 
Crystal and Corey don't remember this detail anymore, but Basilich can see from the original report that both of them talked about strange hang-up phone calls in the hours before they all went to bed. Yeah, and I don't know whether, you know, she picks up and says, hi, hello, and then somebody hits click, or whether it's, hey, hello, hello, nobody say anything, and then she hangs up. But there was no conversation on the other end, who other okay. calls. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. There's no, uh, there's no talk from the other side. It's just empty, and then they hang up. She told the kids not to answer the phone later that night. Um, she got a couple more calls, but nobody answered the phone. Um, so it may have been about that. That might have been why she was calling. Police found the house orderly. No sign of any struggle. Doors still appeared to be locked, um, other than what they were let in the front door when Crystal let everybody in. Um, and the officers, detectives, in their report say that all the windows appeared to be secure as well. No signs of um, forced entry, no signs of any assault or a fight going on inside, except the color TV is missing from the house. Where was that TV located? I think it was the living room on a table. Okay. Nothing else was taken? Nothing. The TV was bought by Ronald. There was some dissension over the Ronald won the TV back and all that, and but nothing. That was the only thing missing. Obviously, Ronald Mosley, as the husband, would be the first to need an alibi, and his was airtight. He was at a Holiday Inn in New London, Connecticut, where Ruby and the Romantics had been performing. And then I said they talked to Ronald later that, that same day. They get a hold of um, the police up in Connecticut. They get a hold of the hotel where he's playing at. Ronald's playing at the night before. And they alibi him as being there the night of the 11th into the 12th, like around 1 o'clock in the morning. And then she's found 6.30 in the morning on the 12th. While police investigators busied themselves about the house, 12-year-old Corey walked into his mother's bedroom. He immediately understood that his mother was gone. But Rampy's 10-year-old mind couldn't make that leap. I remember waking up and just hearing this commotion in the house. Mm -hmm. And I actually walked, uh, I think police were there already. Mm -hmm. And I walked into her bedroom and I saw the gunshot wounds in her temple. And as a kid, I just remember thinking, boy, how did, how did those cigarette holes get there? Mm -hmm. And, uh... Cause she smoked. Mm -hmm. Them coos. Yeah. And I just remember all the, all these strangers in, in the yeah. house and not knowing what's going on. I didn't realize she, she was dead. Five-year-old Steve remembers what might have been the coroner's vehicle. I was sitting in the living room. And I just remember people going back and forth. Yeah. yeah. And then there was a hearse, like Elvis Presley's hearse. I remember we just sitting there. I knew something was wrong. Phyllis had been involved with other men during the 10 years of Ronnie's absence. At least two of them became persons of interest, if only briefly. 
One was a Summit County Sheriff's deputy. His name came to light after Phyllis's murder, when police received a call from an anonymous woman who offered to meet with them at a West Side house. A detective kept the appointment, but the woman refused to give her name. She suggested investigators look into the deputy, but didn't offer any compelling reason why. So the police spoke to him. He states that he and his wife went to a show on the 11th and then picked up his children at his mother-in-law's house, home by midnight. States he never had a key to Phyllis's house. The other man, the mostly children remember, had beaten their mother. He was someone she had repeatedly tried to remove from her life, but who kept showing up because his mother lived on the street. He also had a habit of entering the house using the unlocked window in Crystal's bedroom. He's been friendly with Mrs. Mosley, but Stacy's not seen her since the first part of June, living on the east side. Again, living with common law, another female, employed by Georgia Pacific and Barberton. He admits to being at Mosley's home several times and having relations with Phyllis Mosley. Says he doesn't have a handgun, owns a rifle, never had a key to her house, but he would not consent to taking a polygraph test. Pasilich said he couldn't find records of anyone being polygraphed. And in the end, if the original investigators ever came close to a favorite suspect, their notes don't reveal it. What little evidence was collected 50 years ago, bullet fragments, the curlers Phyllis was wearing, was later destroyed. Though Pasilich said the list of evidence that used to be in the department's possession didn't include anything that would have offered DNA evidence today. In the late 1990s, an adult crystal went to the police department to see the file for herself, and she was stunned to see how small it was. She said the detective she met with back then acknowledged it was far too small for a murder case. I would disagree with that. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot you could do scientifically back then. You probably could talk to more people or, or um, you know, brought them in for more in-depth interviews. But, you know, I still say the same thing. It's kind of, um, it just kind of stops. It's kind of incomplete, I guess you would say, from talking to the people. As the case grew cold, the fate of Phyllis Mosley's children was being decided. Rampy and Steve were taken in by their dad's mom, Wileen Mosley, a woman known for her heartwarming hugs who already had a house full of grandkids. Rampy and Steve made seven. Ronald Mosley moved in too. After 10 years, Ruby and the Romantics were struggling to get bookings, but before the year was out, they called it quits. And a man who had shown such generosity towards his kids when his visits were infrequent turned out to be a violent man. It was really t tough on my dad because afterwards, my dad took his anger out on me and Steve. Mm. And as long as I was in the house, I got the brunt of it. You know, uh, you know, yelling, angry, hitting, beating. He's just a frustrated, angry black That's man. That's true, so and true. If, and if you saw the movie Fences, 
and the role that Denzel Washington played. Yeah, I did see that. That was my that was our life wow. growing up. Rampy said he was the lucky one because no matter how dark it got, he was still motivated to throw himself into schoolwork. And he found an outlet for his anger in football, playing quarterback and defensive back for Bookdell High School. Football was an outlet because I, I think all of us were angry. And, I, and, I, and that, that anger in me, I just became, again, I just pinned it all up. But football was a sport where I could go out and hit people and it was legal. Right. You wouldn't and get in trouble. Pe- people who knew me as a football player did not realize I was the same kid in the classroom because yeah. I was just this calm, yeah. easygoing person. But when I was on the football field, I would destroy people. Life was turning out even worse for Crystal and Corey. They went to live with their maternal grandmother, Dean Young. Phyllis was her only child, and the loss was more than she could bear. She drank herself numb and died herself 18 months after her daughter. Crystal and Corey's next stop was the county children's home, where they lived for a few years until the family of their biological father, Charles Haynes, pressured him to step up and provide a home for his children. But the ramifications of losing their mother and then grandmother and spending their influential teenage years between an orphanage and a father who had refused to acknowledge them most of their life lasted four years. I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm rebellious into my teenage years. Man, all I did through high school, through school period, is fight. That's all I did. I wanted somebody to hurt just like I had been hurting. Be broken just like I was broken. But that was the beginning of my addiction. I was numb. I didn't feel a damn thing. It took away that vision that I had been carrying all those years of seeing my mother. That's all I had seen. So, yeah. Yeah. How long did that last? (laughs) My addiction? Yeah. 17 years or longer. I just celebrated 25. How did you get through it? How did I get through it? Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I was dead. I tried to kill my life, take my life many times. I'd have been shot at. I'd have had pistols drawn on me. Shoot me. Take me out of my misery because I was miserable. And then at some point you started getting better. What happened in your life that changed that? <laughs> you get tired of being tired. The insanity is it. Uh, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. It took Corey years to learn that lesson, too. You know, prior to her death, I was on the honor roll. I was on the uh, whatever. It was a Boy Scout. Yeah, I was a Boy Scout. I was definitely a Boy Scout. I tried playing the instrument. I had a paper route. You know, I was was a go-getter, you know, in elementary school. After she got she got killed, it's it's like the switch just got turned off. I had no ambition to do anything. 
in the children's homes when I really felt as though I had no place to belong. I was indifferent. Um, everybody else, all the other kids still had their mamas. I ain't talking about their dads, but they had they they still had their mamas. That's when my addiction started. I started messing with alcohol in at 14 years old. I'm talking about getting drunk. Anytime a 14 year old knows to stash a bottle of wine in the snow to keep it cold so he can be drinking before he goes to school. Corey joined the Navy at 17 and stayed in for 10 years, a period in which his addiction to drugs and alcohol got worse. After leaving service, he spent seven years living on the street. Today, the four siblings look back and marvel that they all made it through hell. Actually, they're doing quite well now. They credit their faith and God and the human mentors who were put in their way to help them out of those dark days. For Corey, it started with an epiphany. One day, while living in California and looking for his next high, he realized his addiction was taking food out of the mouths of his children. He turned himself into a VA hospital and hasn't had a drink or drug since 1994. He's been married to his third wife, Crystal, for 13 years now and is the owner-operator of his own truck. Crystal eventually married a drug counselor. She got a steady job and retired from Time Warner Cable. She and husband Thomas Church blended their families, five kids between them, one of whom has since passed away, and now surround themselves with grandkids and family gatherings. Rampy, the scholar-athlete with the straight A's and the impressive football record, was accepted to Yale, Brown, and West Point. He chose Brown University, played football all four years, and earned a degree in electrical engineering. He lives in Virginia, is an entrepreneur, and currently works as an independent consultant in sales, marketing, growth, and technology. He's been married for 25 years to Olympic gold medalist, Benita Fitzgerald Mosley. They have two kids. Steve threw himself into music, writing, playing drums, performing with local groups. He has three children and spends his days as an auto detailer for a major car dealership. But music is still his therapy. I've learned to accept the pain I feel that's always going to be there, so to speak. Like something's always going to be missing. I know that's what it is. Um, but with me believing in Christ, I know I'm a seer. You know, I write music. I haven't been writing lately, get ready to get back. But me writing music and playing all different kind of instruments, you know, that's what's all I've had since I was young. And I think it came from the pain of her, you know, subconsciously. Crystal wants to know who killed her mother. She's haunted by the idea that whoever did it was probably still around and close enough to watch the aftermath as they all spiraled out of control. Three of the siblings have a suspect in mind. Interestingly, it's not the same suspect. 
Corey thinks it's the man who used to beat on his mother, the guy whose mom lived in the neighborhood, the one who used to enter the house crawling through Crystal's bedroom window. Crystal thinks it's the sheriff's deputy, not from anything she knows personally, just from things people have said to her over the years. Steve isn't ruling out his father, even though Ronald Mosley had a rock-solid alibi and was a nine-hour drive from Akron. Steve can't forget that, in addition to the beatings he took as a child, his dad pulled a gun on him twice, cocking it and commenting how Steve was just like his mother. Rampy agreed their father had an obsession with guns. Whoever killed Phyllis Mosley, the motive remains unknown. And Detective Pasilich said the chances of solving this one are slim to none. There's no DNA evidence waiting to offer a surprise revelation. Ronald Mosley and the sheriff's deputy that had been questioned are both dead. If you have any information that could help solve this case, please call Detective Jim Pasilich of the Akron Police Department. He's at 330-375-2490. That's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.